recently we've been seeing a kind of anti-women's rights movement growing, anti-LGBT rights movement, anti-marginalized groups movement growing, and seeing a lot of movements against women's rights and how far we've come. And so we've seen a rolling back on this. This is Asha Allen, a digital rights advocate. She's talking about a global trend, a rise in the harassment of women online. This online abuse takes place on platforms like Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, as well as in direct messages. Some see it as a result of misogyny, a fancy word for a terrible thing, the hate of women. You might be surprised to hear that this online phenomenon even happens here in the Nordic countries. Yes, it's true that the nations in this region usually top the list of the world's most democratic countries, and they also rank high in terms of gender equality. But the Nordics are some of the most digitalized societies in the world, and greater digitalization creates greater opportunities for hate to make its way online. Luckily, there are people and organizations in the Nordics examining what's behind this phenomenon, and they're trying hard to reverse the trend. Iceland recently became the first Nordic country to legally define and protect sexual privacy online. In this episode, we'll focus on the perpetrators. Are they lone wolves, or is this a wider cultural issue? We'll also examine existing and future laws to protect women from online harassment. And finally, we'll ask the social media platform and internet gatekeeper Facebook what they're doing to combat this setback for women's rights. I'm Afton Halloran, and you're listening to the Nordic Talks podcast. I was seeing in my work only about a year or two ago the, the kind of decrease in political engagement or political engagement from young women. Again, uh, there were reports showing that uh, young women were more hesitant to engage online. There were less young women joining political parties, for example. We've had um, testimonies and concrete evidence of, say, women MEPs from the previous uh, a term having left and not stood again, citing gender disinformation and online gender-based violence as one of the reasons that they decided to leave the political sphere in the first place. So this then ties into parity democracy and our progress towards parity democracies. So when you look at it in a holistic perspective, that's when you can see this is having an impact on how people can engage uh, with their democracies or civic space. Asha is the advocacy director for the European Office of the Centre for Democracy and Technology in Brussels. And I'm afraid she's spot on in her analysis of the issue. Online harassment of women is devastating for all victims. And it also has direct consequences for women's democratic participation. All of these misogynist, anti-feminists, anti-woke, whatever you want to call it, movements are not protecting anything. They are, in fact, like attacking democracy as we know it or as we would love to know it. This is Christian Mortensen. He's the author of the report The Angry Internet, A Threat to Gender Equality, Democracy and Well-Being. Together with Asha, Christian is taking part in a Nordic Talks event held in Reykjavik, and organized by the Nordic Digital Rights and Equality Foundation, NordREF. And Christian has witnessed the difference between how young women and men are treated on the internet. Broadly, men, especially young men, are more often the target of online harassment than women. But it is sporadic, like it is decentralized, it's not coordinated. And most researchers agree that 
that number is only pumped up because men engage in what is called risk-filled online environments, meaning computer games. So like that is the brunt of the litter of the harassment young men receive. And if they do receive hateful messages or harassment, anything on broad social media, be it Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and so on, it is usually about what they did or what they said. Whereas we know that women are most often targeted for who they are or what they are. Um, their sexuality, their looks, their age, their lack of any of the above. And we do know like from international and Nordic research that the more you're targeted and the smaller a demographic you adhere to, the more likely you are to disengage from the debate. Christian explores the so-called manosphere, an incel culture in the Nordic region. He's witnessed how highly radicalized individuals harass women online. And he's also seen how groups of people organize online to coordinate harassment. In fact, he sees a wider tendency unfolding. There's this self-narrative um, on a lot of web places and a lot of, like over a large part of the political spectrum, that I'm not a misogynist. Like, that is the primary narrative. That implies that anything that I do is not misogynist. So, like, you kind of reiterate this inherited idea of man here, woman down here. And that is one part of it, but that has moved the window of, let's call it, allowed discourse, like what is socially acceptable, what is politically acceptable, even more so. Um, I'm eyeing both the UK and the US when I say that as much as I am Denmark. But that has been the building ground for some of these more, sure, let's call them radical um, internet forums that I'm surveying, observing in my work, where they say that, well, if this is the norm, then maybe we can move that just a bit further. Some of it is done explicitly. Some of it is done via planning and via coordinated attacks. And some of it is done in what I, in my research, find to be psychological self-defense, that we have some very unhappy individuals who say that, well, I'm extremely unhappy. I am made unhappy by society. And now we have another movement, feminism, hashtag Me Too, Black Lives Matter, so on and so forth, who are on the rise. There is then a psychological tendency to view equality and even happiness as a zero-sum game, meaning that if they get more, I'm probably losing less. And some of these digital citizens think that, well, I don't have anything left to give. Therefore, I need, as a measure of self-defense, to attack this growing movement, which Me Too and Black Lives Matter feminism has been over the past five years. Like Everything I'm seeing, I view as a counterculture, as the more that feminism gets to be on the rise, or not even feminism, just equality and egalitarian rights, there's a counter-movement that grows even stronger. We see it in parliaments every day that, who says loudly and clearly, we don't want research inequality because it might upset this balance. And right now, the balance is really benefiting me. So, like, it's trickle-down misogyny. It's important to acknowledge the perpetrators and the consequences for the victims— but what are platforms doing to prevent the rise in online harassment? We just announced in October a new policy on mass and coordinated harassment. This is Cindy Southworth. She's the head of Women's Safety for Meta, the company behind the social media platforms like Facebook, Instagram and WhatsApp. She joins the discussion online from Washington, D.C. 
Cindy is one of the most influential people in the world when it comes to the well-being of women on social media. This new policy really gets at not only coordinated harassment, but mass harassment. So sometimes it's going to be coordinated by a state entity or coordinated by a an extremist group. Other times it may not be coordinated, but still mass. It's still coming at you as an onslaught. And regardless, this new policy covers it. And so I'm sort of optimistic to see, and it's we're going to have to keep refining it as we figure out how it works, where we can step in with this policy when a women's rights activist is being targeted and attacked in a coordinated or mass way. What can we do to to combat that using this new policy? Another policy change is we're absolutely taking down um, pages and groups that are dedicated specifically to sexualizing another person. There's just no need for that. Like we want our platforms to be a place for people to connect and share. And then there's a line. As the largest social media company, Meta is also a first mover in the fight against online harassment. Meta is the first social media company to have and hire a head of women's safety. I implore the other tech companies to hire peers. I would love to have a club of women safety experts at every tech company. So, you know, we've got 40,000 people working on safety and security, and I interface with all of them. So I get to work with engineers on improving our classifiers to make sure that we're picking up hate speech slurs better and removing bullying and harassment um, content before it's ever seen and reported to us. I also get to work with the policy folks. So we just recently announced some enhancements to our sexual harassment policy. Um, One of the things that I'm proud of that happened long before me is that we consider non-consensual intimate images to be any image that harms you. So if it's a deep fake, a shallow fake, which is basically a not very good manipulated image, but regardless of whether it's an actual photo or video of you or it's manipulated, we remove it and we create a hash and make sure it doesn't get reposted. So those are the types of policies that existed even before I joined the company. And I'm constantly pushing the needle to see what else we can do. Where are the gaps? How can we move further? Kristen thinks that more should be done to keep social media platforms harassment free. But there's a problem. There's not a financial incentive to do anything. And if we're honest, economics and financial prowess is kind of what drives this ship. Um, Bettering the world or... I think at some point there was a tech company saying, like, don't do evil, don't be evil. Um, they kind of made away with that when they saw, like, how much money there was in being evil or at least not being good. Uh, like, there is very little incentive to do it. We have reached a technological threshold where companies like Facebook, Google, Twitter are necessary. You can't be a politician today. You can't be an activist today and not be on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Like, if you want to have a voice, that is where you're going to have... Like, we don't do beer box activism anymore. We make a live stream on Facebook. And before we change the way these systems are built, that is not... Like, that is going to be a problem that we, we keep on having. Cindy does not agree. There's a myth out there that we actually want conflict and ugliness to happen on our platforms because it helps us and people engage more. Our numbers, our research shows that's the opposite. People leave platforms, they leave online spaces when it's uncomfortable, when there's harm happening, when there's conflict. So we've got tons of us like me working to figure out how do we drive down that content and when it violates community standards to remove it. And if it doesn't quite violate the community standard, can we at least demote it? Because one of the the challenges and I think everybody on this panel can agree that there's people know how to walk the line. They they figure out where 
where the, the law is. We saw this all the time in domestic violence. In my previous life, you would see abusers know exactly what they could get away with before they would be arrested. And so they would just stay on the line of, of the harassment piece to, to make sure they weren't held accountable. And so as a company, we have to figure out how do we deal with the blatant violations and then how do we deal with those sort of subtle borderline pieces of content and harms. So, as Cindy points out, the perpetrators have gotten very good at staying within the law, which raises the question whether more should be done. From her perspective at the Centre for Democracy and Technology, Asha points to the DSA, the European Union's Digital Services Act. The Digital Services Act is going to fundamentally change everything because it's an update to the e-commerce directive. This is a, a directive that's 20 years old. So some of the systems and services that we're using literally didn't exist at the time this directive that we're updating was came into force. I'm from the MySpace generation, like things were very different back then. Um, but what it is doing is basically uh, updating the kind of framework that governs all digital services in terms of, say, content moderation. So user-generated content platforms such as social media are included in this. But in terms of this particular um, topic and this particular discussion, I think we need to think about the other mechanisms that are happening alongside the DSA. So the European Commission is also going to be bringing forward its own directive on gender-based violence this year. And it is going to include, from what we understand, obligations for platforms related to online gender-based violence. So the questions we have is how are you going to make sure these different pieces speak to each other so that we actually have effective impact for survivors so that the uh, online uh, ecosystem improves, so that there is actually some level of improvement here. Um, but the DSA has also brought up uh, specific conversations around this uh, particular issues. There have been amendments put forward um, around this particular issue, and it has sparked some really, you know, in-depth and necessary and nuanced conversations about how we need to address this from a technical perspective, right? How do, what do we do when we have these situations on these platforms and, and what are the mechanisms that we need to put into place? Um, and so the Digital Services Act has definitely prompted some very in-depth conversations on this. But what we're hoping is that not only does the Digital Services Act which will have a global impact because it's likely to be copied in other places, um, sets a good solid foundation that protects all fundamental rights for all. So the most marginalized groups can benefit from this, but that it must speak to the other specific pieces of legislation that are aimed to address this specific issue in a very, very concrete way. They cannot nullify each other out or they cannot make each other ineffective. Um, and so that's the work that we're trying to do to make sure that it not only makes sense in terms of the legislation, but that practically it's enforceable as well. So does a tech company like Meta also want more legislation to be put in place? As a company, we support regulation and legislation. It actually helps us know where to draw the line and have cover to do it, because otherwise we get a lot of critique in some countries for, for stepping in. And so it does help us immensely. And as a former victim advocate, I you know, have helped write and pass the Violence Against Women Act in the United States. And, I, and it has technology elements in it, which was really exciting for us. So generally, um, I would say that wherever we can hold people accountable and and my concern is when I see legislation that that leaves out the perpetrators. And so if we're going to truly end sexism and end violence against women, we need to not only look at the online spaces where it's occurring, but 
ideally that legislation and regulation is also looking at how do we make sure that sharing a manipulated image isn't illegal. And that's a problem. And so how do we make sure that all the legislation and the regulation covers the full range of things it needs to touch on? Christian is slightly concerned. The more legislation we have, the more we also allow companies to have eyes on a finite goal. Um, whereas you can say, well, we're not evil. We don't do evil because we adhere to these goals. It like having these legislations also allows us to rest on our laurels and say, well, we fulfill all of the goals. We can check all of the boxes that maybe we helped write. And that I fear sometimes that that will take away focus from developing towards democracy and allow like a an infinite development towards engagement and profit and a very finite development towards adherence to these rules. So I, I don't, legislation is super important, but it's not going to be the end all be all to solve all of this. I want to alleviate some of your, your concerns there to let you know how hard civil society is working in Brussels to address the question that you're, you're talking about, because the Digital Services Act itself, to explain it in as simple as I can, well, has these kind of two aims and we're focused on these two aims. So what's concretely illegal? What do platforms, what's the line for them? What do they need to do? Where does their liability stand? There's this other aspect around due diligence obligations, and there's a lot of focus from civil society organizations on this. And so we are pushing as hard as possible. There's many of us running around doing this um, for platforms to improve their due diligence ob obligations um, from a human rights perspective. So looking to the international human rights framework, what already exists. So there's examples like the UN guiding principles uh, around businesses that they need to make sure their products and services don't impact on people or their human rights. We're trying to build, say, human rights impact assessments that take this into consideration. What do due diligence obligations look like? And what kind of guidelines can be consistently developed in coordination with civil society where their researchers are feeding into kind of looking into the data and improving this? So there's these two strands that we're focused on where it's like, yes, concrete legislation, this is illegal. This is what we have to focus on. But how do we improve the due diligence? How do we make sure that this is a consistent process? So we're doing our best to address oh, those I, questions I know, as I know. Well. I'm, and fingers crossed. It's, um, I just know it's going to be a line to thread. And I know that even though you're pushing, I know I expect there to also be pushback. So like fingers crossed. Cindy thinks there's room for optimism. Having been in the women's movement now for 30 years, and I founded the Safety Net Technology Project at my prior um, organization, the U.S. National Network to End Domestic Violence, but I did my very first training in July of 2000, 22 years ago, and I said at the time, this is coming. We are going to see offline violence against women show up online. And I talked about Netscape and Outlook Express and other sort of, you know, historical technologies. So it just dates me, um, putting my age right out there. But... What I will say is back then, it, I never would have fathomed having this conversation with, you know, Nordev, with researchers, with nonprofits, with academic experts, with tech companies about violence against women at all, much less online violence against women. At the time, I was getting cute little head pats. People were like, oh, it's so sweet that you care about, you know, this tech thing. And it's going to go away. And so the sort of march towards justice is long, but it we're, we're moving in the right direction. And it is not an easy 
it's not an easy journey and it is, and it has got lots of bumps and we're, we have setbacks and we have backlash, but over my 30 year career in this space, I've seen major progress. And just the fact that we're having this conversation is part of it. We live in a rapidly digitalizing world. The harassment that women face offline has now found its place on the internet, where it has further intensified. Not only is the pain unbearable for the victims, it also threatens our democratic values. That's why it's so important for social media platforms and politicians to coordinate their efforts and stop harassment in its tracks. As we've heard, initiatives are being taken in Iceland and other Nordic countries to protect women's rights in cyberspace. Hopefully, this will spread to other European countries and ultimately set a global standard. But remember, there's something that you and I can do. We can take a stand and report online harassment against women. Check out NordicTalks.com to learn more about the people that you meet in each episode. I'm Afton Halloran. Thanks for listening.